This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to I'll Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay. Thanks for being here today. Today's episode of the podcast is sponsored by Gooder. If you are looking for an amazing pair of sunglasses, go check out Gooder, gooder.com slash another. They have all sorts of different styles. They're cute. They're fashionable. They're functional. They don't slip around when you run. All types of different styles. Bright, fun colors. Also chill, neutral colors. I love their aviator shades. You all can save when you go to gooder.com slash another and use the code another one five. That's another 15 for 15% off your order. All right. And thank you so much to everyone who has left a rating and review and entered the Gooder sunglass giveaway. We have a winner. Aaron Arnold is the winner. So Aaron Email Emma at sandyboyproductions.com and we will get you set up with the pair of gooder shades of your choice. All right, today you are listening to episode 336 and I'm talking with Brad Stolberg and Shalane Flanagan. Brad is a researcher, a writer, a coach on human performance, sustainable success, and well-being. He has been on the podcast before where he talked about one of his books, The Passion Paradox. He has also written Peak Performance, and his newest book is The Practice of Groundedness that just dropped this week. You can actually purchase it now. We will link to it in the show notes, lindsayhine.com. Brad's work has appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, Wired, New York Magazine, Forbes, Sports Illustrated, and other national and international outlets. He works with executives, entrepreneurs, physicians, and athletes in his coaching practice. And he's also the co-creator of The Growth Equation, an online platform dedicated to defining and attaining a more fulfilling and sustainable kind of success. One of the athletes that Brad has worked with and talked with over the years is Shalane Flanagan. So we decided to have them on together for this episode. If you are a part of the running community, I think you probably know who Shalane Flanagan is. She is a four-time Olympian, an Olympic silver medalist, and the 2018 New York City Marathon champion. She's also an American record holder, and she is a cookbook author, a New York Times bestselling author, times two. Her book, Run Fast, Eat Slow, was a huge hit. They've got a second Run Fast, Eat Slow book out, and soon her and her co-author, Elise Kopecki, have a new book, Rise and Run, coming out. So, such an exciting time in the world of books. In this conversation, we dive into Brad's new book, The Practice of Groundedness. Shalane and Brad both tell some personal stories, I tell some personal stories, and we get into what this book is all about. It's thoughtful, and it gives you actionable steps to actually take as you read the book. We'll link to that in the show notes. And this episode went a little bit long. I feel like we could have talked forever. So we pulled out about 15 to 20 minutes. It's actually 17 minutes to be exact. 
for Patreon. So if you are a supporter on Patreon, you will get that bonus conversation over there and that will drop today as well. Um, We got into parenting and social media and things like that a little bit more. Clearly, I'm on a big social media kick right now and talking about that on the podcast. So if you're looking for further conversation with Brad and Shalane, we have that over on Patreon, patreon.com slash Lindsay Hine. If you do love this episode, please share it with your friends. Leave us a review. Let us know when you do those things, when you share episodes and when you leave ratings and reviews, that helps potential new listeners to find us. And I thank you very much for doing that. Okay. Enjoy my conversation with Brad Stolberg and Shalane Flanagan. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I was just telling Shalane that like, it's very exciting, but also really hard. As you know, moving from California to Asheville, like it's so hard to leave your family and friends and like making new friends in your late 30s compared to your late 20s is it's just different because we're at a different phase in our life. Our kids are a little bit older and I don't know, it's going to take some adjusting for sure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I've totally felt that. I think it both helps and makes it harder that we're in a pandemic because it's not like I was doing too much with my friends in California the year before we came. Um, but then, of course, it's harder to meet people because it's just a bizarre situation. Our son's younger, though. He's three and a half. So we've met a fair amount of people through him. Um, and then there's the running community where Caitlin's met people. So you'll groove in. I mean, you've only been here for two or three weeks. Um but yeah, it's different for sure. Yeah. I Yeah, we totally will. And I know it's like, well, and my youngest is three. My oldest is nine. Um, so meeting people at school and things like that. And I think moving in the summer is better than moving right in the dead of winter, you know. Um, yeah. I'm interested to talk about that, though, because I know that community is like such a big focal point of the book. So we'll get to that as well. Um, but I'm just rolling. We're recording. So we have Shalane Flanagan and Brad Stolberg on the show today. Welcome to the show, guys. Hey, thanks so much for having us. Yeah, great to catch up with you guys. I am really excited to talk to you both. We have to just like connect a little bit on North Carolina chat real quick because Brad and I are, are new residents. When did you move out here, Brad? We are just past our one-year anniversary, so we moved last July. Oh, so you're really new still. Yeah, I'm fresh. And you're in Asheville. Correct. Love Asheville. Have you been to, I'm probably going to say it wrong, but is it Highland Brewing? Is that the brewery that, do you recognize that? Oh, there are so many. New Belgium is like the big brewery down in our neighborhood, but Asheville is Brewery Center, Brewery Central, um, in trail running central and mountain biking. And it's a wonderful place. Well, we stopped there on our way out to Raleigh when we were looking at the area, trying to figure out where we wanted to live. And that was the brewery we went to that it was so good for our kids because they could just run around and play. And it was just a really good atmosphere. So me being the Raleigh person is giving you advice in Asheville. Go check it out. (laughs) Totally. Um, yeah, there's. Um, we're lucky to have all these breweries. I was going to make like a um, poke at Gwen Jorgensen because she's doing this thing where she's like visiting all these places to live and like Asheville didn't meet her bar. It's like, all right, Gwen, well, <laughs> good luck finding a place that does. 
What? I think she complained about the sidewalk. She said there wasn't enough sidewalks for her. Yeah, that's exactly what she said. Um, but you can't, you know, you can't win it all. Um, but they're actually the sidewalk situation is a little bit bizarre. You, you do have to get out onto the trails um, to feel completely safe running because otherwise you are often just kind of running into traffic. Yeah, that's really scary. I have to catch up on this. Is she doing like a video series on this? Yeah, she is. Okay. Um, or at least she was. Uh, my friend here that's like big in the running community sent me this and said, well, at least we're not going to have to worry about like all the runners from Boulder moving here because Gwen just told them it sucks. Okay. But are they coming to Raleigh? Because we've got Amy's group out here. I feel like a lot of people are moving to North Carolina in general. Yeah. I don't know. No, I think they decided on, uh, Boulder actually. I think they're, they're moving. It's official. Oh, it's official. Okay. That's exciting. Um, All right, uh, last North Carolina piece, and we'll move on. Uh, tell us your favorite thing about North Carolina, Shalane. I know you went to UNC. <laughs> um, let's see. Well, the Tar Heels, anything Tar Heel sports. Um, and then I just really miss barbecue, some good barbecue. I like the, like, cider vinegar barbecue. And out here on the West Coast, just not the same. So oh, good food. Yeah. Yep. Do you have any recipes in any of your cookbooks with a good cider vinegar barbecue? Good question. No, but maybe in the next one we should. Okay. So. Yeah. Put it on the list. I love it. Okay. A barbecue cookbook. That would be great. <laughs> yes. Okay. So Shalane, you just got back from Tokyo. Tell us real quick what it was like going to your fifth Olympics as a coach this time. Uh, let's see. Yeah. Fifth Olympics. Um, but during a pandemic, um, with no fans and as a coach, completely different situation than going as an athlete with a normal, um, Olympic experience, but it was super special. Nonetheless, like the athletes were so appreciative to be there that it didn't impact their performances, but it was really strange to go into this massive stadium and you could hear a pin drop. It was really quiet. Um, but the silver lining, I felt like as a coach personally, was I could get right up on the rail, literally be on the track and yelling at my athletes exactly what they needed to hear, what they wanted to hear, um, you know, instructions on how to execute everything. So much more intimate experience um, in that aspect. But there was a lot of red tape. I was COVID tested every day. It was super hot and humid. Um, It was just a unique experience, a once in a lifetime, um, unlike anything that we'll hopefully ever experience again. But there was definitely some positives to it. Um, The ability to just walk around um, without massive crowds was kind of nice. But um, I look forward to Paris and it being more normal. Oh, for sure. Um, what were you saying to Courtney? Could you yell at her? Could she hear you? Yes. Um, well, if anyone knows Courtney really well, she is her natural instinct is to not lead and be aggressive in a race. So it took a lot of coercion to build the confidence that she could execute a really aggressive race. So it was constant reinforcement that when she took the lead, that she was going to do something really big and that it was worth that commitment to doing something really scary. And we'd mentally prepared her, but still, as much as you mentally prepare and visualize, like it's still intimidating. And so we're just constantly reinforcing that what she was doing was perfect and that she looked great and that she looked strong and just, you know, 
that ability to communicate and yell at her, I think really helped elevate her performance. And we almost saw her win gold because of it, I feel like. It was so incredible. And, you know, I talked to Courtney after the race and she talked to me about your chat with her with, you know, she had some sickness beforehand and she really credited you to helping her in the mental space get in the right headspace for the race. Like it happened. And this is kind of like, this kind of goes in with the book. We can get into the book. Um, the practice of, of groundedness is that like, you're here now. Like Courtney had to accept that she was in that moment. She was sick. And when she started feeling better, all she could focus on was being present and starting to feel better. And then when she got on the line, focus on being on that line. So talk to us a little bit about how you worked with her to get through that. Yeah. So when we arrived in Hawaii as our heat and humidity training, um, Courtney came down with some type of food poisoning, some type of bug. Um, and we were literally, uh, I don't know, 10 days, 14 days out from her first race, um, in Tokyo. So obviously not optimal. This is very suboptimal to get sick, um, beforehand, but you know, like in the practice of groundedness, um, Brad explains like acceptance, right? Like we had to accept what was happening. We couldn't fight it. We had to accept where we were and then come up with a plan and control what we can control of where we want to be within 10 to 14 days and take, you know, actionable steps to that, but panicking and, and worrying about what we couldn't control, the fact that she couldn't keep fluids in or food in. We just had to take it day by day, hour by hour. You know, we tried to do a workout one day. She couldn't complete it um, because she was throwing up. So we just said, okay, well, we're done for today. Like, what can we do tomorrow? What, you know, fluids can we get in you? And fortunately, I had been in a very similar situation. So I could draw upon my experience as an athlete, um, before I won my Olympic silver medal in Beijing, I actually got severe food poisoning in China and couldn't even get on the plane to go to the Olympic village. And, um, you know, I was like an all time low and really in a way alleviated a lot of pressure to a degree because I just felt like, well, when I get on the start line, I'm going to just feel so grateful to be here and just with my health and the ability to just be here. But yeah, with Courtney, I just said, listen, I've been here before. You're going to be fine. Um, we'll take all these steps to get you healthy. And you know what? Sometimes these um, these things that look like disaster, um, they actually are a blessing in disguise. She was more tapered and more well-rested in a weird way. Yes, she was sick. But once she got over the sickness, I told her, I was like, Courtney, you're going to actually feel amazing. Like I've been here before. And I think just that reassurance that she was going to be okay, but we had to accept the situation in which we were in and then move forward. And just the biggest asset I think was the mindset that we put ourselves in and it was constant positivity. And yes, this is, this, this sucks, but we're constantly, I constantly reminded her like your mind controls a lot for me. So how we think about what's happening to you has a huge impact. And I think just, leaning into her support system and um, all of us helping her get back to that good mindset um, really had a huge impact. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it had to be reassuring to her that you had been through that pretty much the exact situation and you got the silver medal and then she got the silver medal. So exciting. And then Mohamed, he got a silver medal. I mean, 
this Olympic cycle, it, it's just so, it was such a strange, strange year for it. But um, obviously, Courtney's silver medal probably tops the charts of of excitement. But uh, comment on Molly Seidel getting uh, third, or was she second or third? Third, yeah. yeah. Third. third in the marathon. I mean, that to me was the most exciting thing I think I'd seen in the Olympics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I woke up in Tokyo. I'd had a really night late, uh, late night at the track and woke up to um, maybe about 30 K into the race. Cause they had switched it an hour earlier because of the heat and humidity. It was a huge factor um, for a lot of the athletes. So they made a smart decision, made it earlier. But as a result, because I got back from the track at like two, I, I missed like the first hour. So I woke up and just saw Molly, throwing herself full throttle into the race and sticking her nose in it being super gritty. And I just thought, you know what, there's going to be a big opportunity here. I could just sense her um, willingness to just hurt and to just go for it and go all in. And um, I just felt like something special was going to happen. And obviously she just put herself in the position to just be there and capitalize in the moment. And she just, um, she did it, which I, I'm surprised, but I'm not surprised. I've known Molly for a long time. I actually met her in high school, and she had the tools not only physically, but I feel like mentally to be at this level. And I'm just happy that she was able to take time away from the sport, um, you know, four or five years ago to get healthy. And, you know, I think the, the mental aspect she talks about um, and her eating disorder were huge. Um, it was a huge turning point in her career. And I think we're seeing obviously those choices that she made four or five years ago pay off big dividends um, now. Yeah. Yeah. She looked like she was in pain like early on. I mean, I was like, how is she going to do this? But she just kept doing. And I love what you said, her willingness to be in pain. You got to do that. <laughs> yeah, um, you got to commit to getting uh, uncomfortable for a really long time, and that's the marathon. Get comfortable being uncomfortable. Yes. And, and I don't know Molly, but I have to imagine that, like, the pain of being in the thick of struggling with disordered eating is probably harder than the pain in the marathon. And it's not to say that you'd ever want something like that to teach you to be tough. Um, but I do think like, you know, the pain of a marathon is voluntary and an eating disorder feels very involuntary. So my sense is like that ability to grind and grit, um, she probably has a higher capacity for that than she did before. And then most people do. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. And, and on that note, when we're talking about like issues that are related to mental health, I mean, an eating disorder is very much, you have a mental hold, there's a mental hold on, on how you think about food and moving your body and all those things. Um, let's dive into your diagnosis with OCD, Brad, and talk about how that has been a part of your writing journey and pieces of this book. Um, the practice of groundedness, how does that kind of overlap? Yeah, so the the context is um, just a few months after my first book came out, which is called Peak Performance. And we were we talked about that book way back in the day here on this show. Um, I had really stark onset obsessive compulsive disorder. So I had no history of anxiety, depression, anything like that. Um, but it very quickly just swallowed me. And I think it's worth taking a second to explain because OCD is often so misrepresented. People think of it as like being a neat freak or, or needing to have things in order. 
Um, but that's not really what it is. It is repetitive, intrusive thoughts that tend to cling on to things that are really important to you, followed by just terrible feelings associated with those thoughts. Um, and for me, it was like a very depressive, what's the point of life? We're all going to die anyways. How do you make meaning? Um, on and on and on. And I can say those things now in a rational way, but when those thoughts are accompanied by such anxiety or despair, they just become all consuming. Um, and this happened to me, yeah, three months after peak performance came out. And I remember getting emails from people, mostly young men saying, Hey, like you're only 30 years old. You've got this book. That's a commercial success. Like you coach these people. How do you have it all together? And I just remember being like, Oh shit. Like if only you knew. And at a certain point, the cognitive dissonance of on the one hand suffering so much with this OCD on the inside and to those that really know me, and on the other hand, on the outside, being seen as like this expert on performance, that almost became as bad as the OCD itself. So I remember talking to my therapist, I'm like, I either need to stop writing or somehow close this gap. And um, over time, she encouraged me that the, the thing to do that would enlarge my life, not diminish it, is not to stop writing, but instead to close the gap and to not only be vulnerable in doing it, but to reconcile that, hey, you can be a coach, you can be an expert in peak performance, and at the same time, really struggle with these things. Um, so that was a good eight months of being pretty sick, weekly therapy, um, and slowly but surely getting out of the woods, again, with the help of just a phenomenal therapist. There's very specific treatments for OCD that, thank goodness, tend to work. Um, and I got on the other side of that, and I said, well, what do I want my next writing project to be? And OCD, depression, anxiety, all of these things are syndromes and they're super complex. They're partially environment, partially biology, and partially we have no idea. But there was a part of me that's like, what patterns was I in before this happened that might have contributed to it? And when I stepped back and, and evaluated, it was... Um, kind of like a frenetic energy in my life that wasn't bad. It was really good. Like I'm in a wonderful marriage, my book's doing well, but I was just kind of like all over the place always. Mm. And that's when I realized that when the rug got swept out from underneath me, like there was no foundation, there was no floor. And that made me start thinking, well, what does it look like to build a really solid base for life? We think about it all the time in training, but what does it look like in life? And then I started realizing the paradox is like the better things are going, the more you disregard that base because you're writing books, you're having fun, you're traveling, you're like doing all this stuff. And it's easy to neglect those things that become the foundation. So I started doing some research. I started to talking people and I realized that like, I'm not the only person that's had this happen. And I'm certainly not the only person that feels a little bit unmoored. And we clearly live in a culture that is very much about being busy and fast paced and frenetic energy. Um, and that's when I had this idea to explore, well, what would it look like to do the equivalent in running of building a really foundational solid base for not just running, but for all of life. And then to continue the training analogy, how do you not leave that base behind when you start fine tuning? So when you're trying to get promoted at work, or when you're about to peak for a race, or when you have a book coming out, or whatever it might be, how do you not leave some of those core fundamental attributes behind so that that strong, solid foundation is always there? 
Yeah, I relate to that so much because I think that when we have a lot going on, like Shalane was just saying, like in Tokyo, you were so busy that it was hard to be away from your son, but you had things to do, right? So like the sadness of missing him was like a little bit overshadowed by being busy. And I think that when we're busy and we have a lot on our plate and exciting things happening, like for me hitting publish on an episode, just like even the simple things in life, um, once that's done, like in the end, what we're all looking for is fulfillment. And when all that busyness is over or like after a big marathon, if you don't have that foundation, where do you go? Yeah, that's it. In, 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 And it's so important because it's not to say that we shouldn't do these things that like we should try to win medals and we should write books and we should try to get promoted and we should publish podcasts. And as you said, without that foundation, when all that kind of shuts down and gets quiet, well, then what's there? Um, You see this so frequently and it's something that Shalane and I have discussed quite a bit in transitions. Mm. So you go all in on something. Um, in Shalane's case, it's a sport. And then it's time to transition out of competing. Well, what's there when that sport's gone? Um, you see it in parenting. You go all in on parenting and then your kids move out. Well, what's there? Like we know that people suffer from depression and marriages tend to fall apart when kids move out. So it's this very common theme. It's extremely human. It cuts across so many different domains of life. And like again, the question that the book tries to answer is, what's the basic hygiene we can do not to avoid the pain of those things. Those things are going to be hard. They're going to they're going to hurt. But to have enough of a foundation to like stand strong amidst it, um, and that's that's really the question that the book tries to answer. Wow, I don't know why I've never thought of it like that. And I'm curious, Shalane, now that you're a parent, um, just thinking through your career, you know, like the decades of this like incredible career and hanging that up and moving on to the next thing. Do you see that? Now, as a parent, like, do you think about Jack being 18 and what that will be like? Um, no, I don't want to think about that. <laughs> I know. It's so hard. But, yeah, I mean, it, it does a little bit enter my mind only because um, Jerry Schumacher, the, the, my previous coach, um, coached me. And now I get to work, my mentor, and I get to work alongside his, all of his kids are starting to go off to college. And um, just watching how the family dynamic shifts and changes. And then as parents, um, you know, having to let go and um, into the big, scary world. And it's kind of nice. You get to control them within your own home. But then when they're gone, it's it's uh, he says it's even harder than when they're little because um, it's just really letting go. And um, but, yeah, you know, Brad and I have talked about the pendulum swinging to extremes. Right. Like when you go all in on anything in life, um, like you said, like parenting, um, you know, writing a book and, and, you know, training for the Olympics, when the pendulum swings back, you know, it's all in working really hard, so singularly focused, and then it swings back to the extreme of not much going on. Um, you know, and a lot of the Olympic athletes are experiencing this right now, if they don't have a good foundation, like Brad's talking about, um, there is a propensity to just feel really down and lost and don't know what their sense of purpose is. Like, They've had, you've had a reason to get out of bed every morning and excited um, about something in your life that you could go all in on. And then when that's taken away, you're kind of left with like, well, what am I good at? Like, what's, what's the point of my day? Um, mm-hmm. You feel really lost and like you miss that fulfilling sense of going all in on something. And, you know, Brad really helped me in a crucial time um, of transitioning out of being an athlete 
um, going through some knee surgeries and, you know, kind of like just grappling with like, well, what's next and what can I get excited about? And like, it was hard. It was like, even though I was excited to do something different and I've been preparing myself for it, um, as much as you can prepare, it's still not easy. It's still uncomfortable. Like I would describe transitions as, yeah, it can be really sad, but more than anything, just really uncomfortable. Like you're like, who am I now without that one thing? Um, and it's, there's nothing easy about it. Um, and it gets, it can get better day to day, but it takes a while. Hey friends, a quick break here to thank Gooder for supporting this episode of the podcast. If you are looking for some great sunglasses that are super cute and don't slip around with lots of fun options, go to gooder.com slash another and use the code another one five to get 15% off your order. That's gooder.com slash another. Use the code another one five for 15% off your order. All right friends back to the show. Okay. One of the things you mentioned was like you finish the Olympics and then you have you know your day-to-day. What is my day-to-day now? And one of the points in the book that you talk about, Brad, is activation energy. So can you hit on that? For sure. So there's this misconception that you've got to be feeling good to get going. And you have to be like super motivated and inspired to go do anything, whether it's a running workout or just getting out of bed, right? So many books on like positive thinking and, you know, starting off your day with energy and bulletproof coffee and all this stuff. Um, But what the research shows is that mood actually comes second to action. So you can't change how you're thinking or feeling, but you can nudge yourself into action And by acting, you can change your mood. So the pithy way I like to think about it is you don't need to feel good to get going. You need to get going to give yourself a chance at feeling good. And we know that this works because it is the gold standard treatment for clinical depression. So when applied to the ultimate extreme, cannot get out of bed, the goal isn't to try to change someone's thoughts or what they're feeling in their chest or their body to make them want to get out of bed. The goal is actually to teach that person that you can feel this way and be kind to yourself and not like feeling this way. And even if it feels like running a freaking marathon, you can still start your workout. You can still do a load of laundry. You can still show up to talk to your friends. Because what those feelings tend to do is they build on themselves, right? Because now like, well, I haven't really been activated in two days and then you lose the confidence. Like, well, am I always gonna be like this? Or I don't really wanna be in a social situation because I haven't um, and it's breaking through and doing that. Now, the nuance here is that if you're struggling with just exhaustion and burnout, sometimes you actually do want to like stay in bed. And that is the, the positive thing. So I talk about there being two kinds of rest and shutdown. There's productive rest and shutdown when you're actually tired and you actually need to recharge. And then there's your mind body system tricking you and telling you that like you actually need to recharge when in fact what you need is to kind of spurt yourself into action. And with COVID in particular, Um, So many people are going through this, myself included. Like I used to love working out because I'd go to a gym and I'd be in a community. And now I'm in my basement. And I probably trained like 250 days last year and maybe six of those days did I want to. Like it's been a struggle. And again, I write these books. Like I used to pop out of bed. It's a lot harder. Part of it is I have a kid. I'm always tired. But no doubt part of it is 
the normal things in our life that kind of like keep us going from day to day, week to week have changed so drastically because of this pandemic that it's been easier to slip into this inertia of like not really getting going. And then you lose the motivation. And what I argue in the book and what the research shows is that the only way you're going to get that motivation back is by kind of pushing through the rut and, and taking action. And then the second part of that is you don't just want to take any action, like because you could go get pissed drunk. That's probably not a productive action. You want to act in alignment with your values. So if one of your values is health, maybe you want to cook a meal or maybe you want to exercise. If one of your values is community, even if you'd rather just text your friend and flake out, you should go schlep your ass to the trail and meet your friend for a run or a walk. And these are the things that then give you a chance to snap out of it and feel better. You always feel better when you go. You always feel better after the fact. Yeah, but not judging yourself. So there's like a self-compassion. It's not like, you know, oh, you're being lazy. You need to go. It's like, oh, wow. Like, it's really hard. I'm parenting in a pandemic. Like my usual sources of excitement are gone. I feel like crap. And my mind body is telling me not to go. And I can appreciate that. But I know deep down inside the thing is go. So I'm just going to take you with me thoughts and feelings that are saying not to go and give myself a chance. That's like the inner dialogue. Yeah. And I want to put an asterisk next to that because I said you always feel better when you go. And I will say there are moments, there are times when it does feel good to, I don't know, cancel plans or whatever and and stay on the couch. But yesterday uh, I dropped my kids off at school. It is like 90 degrees, so hot and humid here. And I was like, you're going to commit to running 30 minutes just to like get your day going. And I ran a mile and a half and I was like, this is miserable. Like I am enjoying none of this. So I said, you gave your, you gave yourself a chance, Lindsay, like you did, you, you ran for like 12 minutes or whatever. You can stop now and just walk. And then I skipped my leg workout that day because I was just tired. I was just tired. And I'm saying that to say to the listeners that I said, you know, you always feel better after you go, but sometimes it's okay to not go. You know? Yeah, that's wisdom. Like people ask me, how do you know when what you actually need is true shutdown and rest? And how do you know when what you actually need to do is kind of force yourself through? And man, if you could develop like a risk tracker that could give you that answer, you'd be wealthy. Um, but no heart rate variability, no device is going to tell you the true answer to that. Ultimately, you just have to pay close attention and kind of say like, here's what I tried. Here's what worked. Here's what didn't. Here's what I'm getting out of this. Um, but it's tricky. Like, I mean, you could argue that 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 is the definite wisdom is like, this is non-dual. Sometimes A works, sometimes B works. And wisdom is learning yourself well enough to know when. I think that people tend to err on the side of kind of assuming that you need to be feeling good to get going. Mm, Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. Let's talk about the principles of groundedness. And I'm curious, Shalane, if you were, familiar with these things like throughout your career is this something you started really working on once you transitioned acceptance presence and patience are the three principles correct there's acceptance presence patience and then the second half there's also vulnerability community which shalane is like you know the star of in the running world so she knows that one well um so then those are the others Yeah, I mean, they all resonated with me. Like when Brad lays it out in his book, like every time, like what I love about Brad's books is like, I read it and I'm like, oh yeah, like I knew that. Or, oh yeah, like that's so simple, like so applicable, like to my life. And like, 
probably thoughts I've had in my head, but he, he articulates it and reinforces and backs it so well. Um, so it's like, I, I, I joke that I find myself just like underlining every sentence in his book. And I'm like, well, what's the point? I, I underlined everything. Um, <laughs> like, it all resonates with me. It's like he's inside my head sometimes. Um, but yeah, you know, for sure, the one the one that really uh, obviously sticks out is community. I, I really believe strongly in just surrounding yourself with great people. And then hopefully, you know, if you surround yourself with people that have the same values or are, you know, have a skill set that you want to acquire or you want to be like, um, you can only elevate yourself as a person, hopefully, um, by surrounding yourself with good people. And in the end, I think you enjoy the journey of whatever you're doing um, a lot more if you have great people around you. Like, um, I get a lot of, you know, athletes who are looking to potentially like move on to the next steps in life. And I'm not um, a life coach like Brad, but I do reinforce like the one thing I feel like one thing that I take away from my transition is I wanted to stay in the running community because I really love the people in the running community. And I felt like if I go and I work every day with people that I like, I'm going to be a happier person. I'm going to come home. I'm going to be a better wife. I'm going to be a better mom, a better daughter, sister. Um, and I think it has a huge impact on how it transcends to everything. So um, community is the one that obviously really resonates with me. Yeah. And I think the other thing there is being with people that have like been where you're going is so helpful. Mm -hmm. Like I'm sure that you're, you know, programming and periodization and all that for Courtney is hundred percent gold. And my guess is just the fact that you could put your hand on her shoulder 14 days before the race and be like, I've been here too. Like this sucks. I know exactly what you're thinking. It sucks and it's going to be okay. Like without doing that, I doubt she would have won a silver medal. You, you can't know, but just like that's, that's the other part of community that's so important is not just like the performative showing up, but like the real deep, like what you're experiencing is not unique. And like, I'm here. Um, that's just, that's priceless. And it's so great in sport because it happens, but out in the world, like in our like hustle culture obsession with optimization, that's the first thing that gets cut out because it's really inefficient to show up for people. It takes time. It takes energy. Um, and you can do way too much of it. Like compassion fatigue is real. So again, it's not to say like never do anything for yourself, only show up for other people. But I think currently the pendulum has swung so far in the direction of everything has to be efficient, everything has to be optimal, and what gets crowded out is community. Yeah, that was especially hard in 2020. I mean, it's it's a lot easier now, I mean, especially in the summertime, but um, yeah, I mean, that was really, really, I think I'm I'm a pretty extroverted person and I don't know if you guys know the Enneagram, but I'm an Enneagram seven and I just need to be around people to thrive. And it's interesting. I don't know if your uh, significant others are, you know, different in that way from you, but like my husband could be so happy just like being with our family and we could go four weeks and not see a friend and it just wouldn't even, he would, he, you know, he doesn't care. But you know, then if we do see people, he is happy, but it's not as necessary for him in his happiness yeah i think there's definitely like a, a temperamental bias there 
Um, and I think if you are very extroverted and you thrive off the energy of other people, then the, the pandemic has been even harder. And, you know, the other thing I'd say is like back to the value of community, hopefully the pandemic has reminded us that like what's actually really important are these relationships and the people that we surround ourselves with. Cause when that was taken away, that like added extra layers of, um, of hurt. Cause normally when things are really hard, like you go to your people. And I think what made this extra hard is like going to your people became much more complicated and at times risky. Yeah. Um, one of the things I want to talk about is we touched on it a little bit at the beginning, but accepting what's happening and like being here in the moment. And for me, one of the things I really struggle with is like health related fears. Like that's just, you know, you talked about your OCD, like that has had a really big stronghold on my head for a very long time. Um, and I'm going to read one of the things that you wrote. It says, what if this fear of irrelevance, failure, losing control, running out of time, embarrassment, or death is simply an unavoidable part of the human condition? And so then you get into talking about like emotional flexibility. And I think that that's something a lot of us probably need to talk to somebody about if we struggle with, with that on a daily basis, right? Yeah, I think so. And in what I'm trying to say there is, um, so like health related fears that perhaps ladder up to like fear of dying, right? Totally normal thing. I think most humans have that. And if you look on the other side of that fear, well, what's the opposite of death? Living life, right? So like that is your value. And like the fear of death is actually like making your life smaller when you give into it because like you're sitting there worrying about something in the future instead of living your life. So if these fears are like, yeah, repetitive times, multiple times a day, absolutely. Like reading my book's going to help, but go find a therapist that can like really hold your hand and walk with you. The flip side is like these fears are also normal to have and trying to repress them or run away from them often just makes them worse. And what can be really helpful is to say, well, you know, what's the opposite of the fear? And that's the thing I value. And then that's the thing like I need to be pointing towards. Um, I think courage is like going and living, even though you're scared of dying, not letting the fear contract you. Um, does that make sense? Contract, excuse me. Yeah, it's really powerful. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of therapy that I've gone through to, to help me see these things in a, in a lot of writing and research, but it doesn't make it easy. Like it's it is hard to, to like, we're the only species that knows that we're going to die. <laughs> so I'm not the only one living like this. <laughs> no. Well, I mean, during COVID and the pandemic, I mean, I think it's so easy to get caught up in like, oh, I'm not going to go do this. I'm not going to go do that because I'm, I'm so afraid um, my children are going to get sick. I'm going to get sick. And so it's easy to just be standstill and not, not live. Um, so it's very applicable, like that statement to our current times right now. Yes. I love that. The opposite of the fear of death is living. I know. I, I think about I think about waste, all the wasted energy and minutes of my life I have spent on that when I could have been just like, you know, fully embracing whatever that moment could have been. Yes. I have a really, um, I have a story in it and, and I'll tell it because it's quick. Um, but I know someone that like struggles with with similar related fears and like would constantly take their blood pressure. Mm. 
And their therapist is like, well, one day your blood pressure is going to be high and one day your heart's going to stop beating. So like, what does it matter? Like why? And again, right. If, if you're taking your blood pressure because it might be high and medication can help you, that's very responsible behavior. But once it gets into this fear mode or like this compulsive mode, then um, I think it's worth asking yourself like, well, is this avoidable? And if not, like, why don't I actually do the thing that's opposite um, to it? Uh, and that's a big part of acceptance. Because again, repressing the fear never works. Trying to think your way out of it or like change how you feel never works. But saying, oh, wow, like this is real. This is something that is holding me back. And I'm not going to judge myself. I'm just going to notice it. And I'm going to take it along with me. Even if it's telling me don't go, just take that fear along with you. And then see how you feel after. Um, I think that, I mean, Shalane, I'd be curious if during your transition out of competing as an athlete, like, was there an element of this kind of fear of, you kind of mentioned, like, who am I? Or what am I going to do if I don't run? And my sense is like, there was no switch that you could flick and be like, well, now I'm coach Shalane. It was probably a slog of like having those tough days and taking those thoughts and feelings with you and just moving in the direction of your values anyways, which was so community focused. Yeah, I absolutely had a fear of not having a purpose. I had so much purpose with my running and it consumed me and it was wonderful. Um, but yeah, I was I was terrified of not having any purpose in my day. And that that was, like I said, really uncomfortable. And I didn't like sitting and not having, I didn't have much to do. There was this awkward time period that you and I talked about where like, I didn't really have a lot going on and I wasn't used to that. I was used to being very stimulated, very busy, very purposeful and to just kind of sit and um, accept that maybe this is a time to just kind of sit and wait to see what my next adventure was going to be was really awkward, really uncomfortable. And even in the transition of coaching, like I knew I had the capability of being a great coach, but I also felt a bit of an imposter syndrome with it. Like I didn't really belong, even though I had a ton of experience in the sport, but it's like, how do I translate that to actually helping other people? And what are my skills as a coach? Um, and I had to develop and find out what are my strengths and weaknesses and where do I need to learn things? And um, it was for sure, especially the first year coaching, I didn't love it to be honest at first because I didn't really know if I was good at it. And I'm like, maybe this isn't for me, but it was also a weird time period because it was the pandemic and talk about like a your circle of community really shrinking down to its core. And I did get to see my athletes, but not in the way that a typical coach athlete working relationship should be, which normally is like a lot of in-person interaction, which I thrive on. I don't love texting and calling as much. I'd rather see my athletes because I get to like, I am much more intuitive if I see people and I enjoy that part of coaching a lot more than trying to text and call and trying to get information out of my athletes. I like to see them move. I like to see their expressions, like way more intuitive in that aspect. So, um, yeah, th I was so fearful of just not having purpose in my life. And, you know, the biggest blessing for sure is becoming a parent. I, I can't think of a bigger calling of purpose <laughs> than trying to take care of um, a little human and providing for them. But yeah, it's, um, it's taken a while to get to feeling like that same sense of purpose again, but it has resumed and it has, but it's in a different way now. And I love it, but 
for a while, like a year, I was like, ah, man, this is really hard. I'm struggling big time. Yeah. And that's when community, I think, is like so important to have is like a safety net almost. Because another one of these myths that I think like the book takes on and addresses, um, at least I try to, is we're sold that everything has to be meaningful always. Mm. And it's really nice when everything is meaningful always. And if we're lucky, we have stretches of years and years in our life where everything feels meaningful always. But sometimes things just feel blah. Like there is no purpose. There is no meaning. And it doesn't mean you have to like it, but the extra layer of like judgment or shame or I should in the book, I say like should is like, don't shit on yourself. Mm-hmm. I you don't shit on yourself. Like I should have meaning. I shouldn't feel this way. That never helps. It only makes things worse. Instead of accepting like, wow, like things feel really meaningless, really purposeless. It's scary. I better pick up the phone and call someone and talk to them about this. Um, that is so much more effective than like the shame or guilt of trying to carry that with you because everyone that I've talked to that's over 50 has had a period in their life where they felt devoid of meaning. Mm -hmm. It's like taboo to talk about, but when you know that it's totally normal, then when that period comes, you're not as scared by it and and you're not as thrown off by it. And then the other comment, Shalane, is I hope it's okay to say this. I distinctly Mm -hmm. remember a conversation I had when you were feeling some imposter syndrome around working with Jerry, because Mm -hmm. Not only had Jerry coached you, but like you look up to Jerry so much as a coach. And I just remember telling you like, well, you're not going to be coach Jerry and that's okay. Like you're going to be coach Shalane. Like Jerry is a dude, not a woman. Jerry never ran at the level that you ran. Like there's so many differences and trying to be Jerry makes no sense. And Jerry's a phenomenal coach and you'll have to grow into your own phenomenal coach. And like that tweak seemed to like, kind of like hit on something in your brain where you're like, oh yeah, like I don't, I don't have to be Jerry. I, I can't be Jerry. Yeah. And I'm not going to be better or worse. I'm going to be different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the world doesn't need an, another, another Jerry. Jerry is Jerry. And I realized that, that I have different strengths and assets. And um, so kind of like throwing and leaning into those skill sets that I have, um, have definitely helped me. Like I, when the athletes are given a workout and, you know, I can feel in my bones the fatigue of what they're going through and the discomfort and the the mental games that they're playing with themselves and callousing of the brain, like, and is so fresh within me. Um, my compassion level for what they're doing is, is very different than what Jerry, um, can relate to. So yeah, it, that really helped like switch things for me to really realize like, Oh, I have something to offer and it's not what Jerry can offer. And that makes what I do unique and special in its own way. I mean, I've talked to several of the ladies that you coach and the way that they express their gratitude towards you being one of their coaches is really special. And I think as a female, it probably is really nice to have a female coach. I mean, I know Jerry was your coach, but there's something to that. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a comfort level of um, what they will disclose to me versus what they will share with Jerry. Um, I, I like to think of myself as also more of like a life coach in general too. Um, you know, it's not just the X's and O's of training that they talk to me about. It's actually usually not about that. It's usually about other life things. It's about their health, their nutrition, what's going on in their life, the ups and downs, um, things that they're struggling with or they're excited about. Um, so no, I'm, I'm very grateful to be in the position to work with 
incredible athletes, men and women. Um, you know, I'm not exclusive to just the women's team. I obviously um, have a intimate, more like closer relationship with them, but there's some men that, um, you know, I've been able to work with that um, have sought out my advice and it's been, it's been extremely rewarding. Yeah. Hey everybody, a quick break here to let you know, I started a parenting podcast. It's called Why Is Everyone Yelling? Uh, a name that my sister actually came up with, but it's something that I find myself saying it all the time. Why is everyone yelling? I started this podcast because as my kids got a little bit older, I had more and more questions. I had my babies without reading any parenting books and just figuring I could wing this whole thing. And as they got older, the problems got more complicated and I'm foreseeing that they'll get even more complicated. So I decided to start a show where I could bring on everyday parents and experts that could help me dive into some of these questions I have. Our most recent episode is one of my favorites and it's actually with a runner. Her name's Callie Warner and she's a family and behavioral therapist. She focuses on obsessive compulsive disorder and anxiety. She actually ran in the 2020 Olympic marathon trials herself and has a history of obsessive compulsive disorder and her work focuses on OCD, athlete repetitive and ritualistic performance inhibiting behaviors, anxiety and performance and mental health stigma. This episode was a great help for me and my own parenting and I hope anybody who listens gets as much from it as I did. If you are new to checking that show out, let me just give you another episode that I think would be good to start with. Well, episode 42 with David Thomas on raising boys, that was a really good episode. Episode 40, Kate Borsato managing anxiety, guilt, and intrusive thoughts as a parent. Ooh, and I feel like this would be a good one for this crowd. Episode 38 was with Kevin Wolma, and we talk about navigating youth sports. Lots of great episodes over there. One more I will share. Episode 9 is with Katie Arnold. She's been on this podcast before. She is the 2018 Leadville 100 champion. We had a couple episodes. The first one was episode 9 about raising adventurous kids. And the second one was episode 15, nurturing a love for sport and play. Again, that podcast is called Why Is Everyone Yelling? We'd love to have you check it out. All right, back to the show. I'm curious when you were walking through that imposter syndrome, what were some things you did to overcome those feelings? I think it's kind of like process. It's like accepting that I have those feelings. Like, okay, I feel like an imposter. Um, and I think it just takes time to kind of grow out of the feeling to a degree and then giving myself a pat on the back when I do feel like I do a good job and I do have a skill that maybe not everyone has or I have something unique to offer. Um, but I think it's just it takes time. Like any transition in life is, is just uncomfortable and hard. And to think that it's going to be always easy and smooth is unrealistic. And so I think I thought, oh, like, this will be so smooth. I'll just go straight seamlessly into being a coach. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I've already like been thinking about it. So if I think about it enough, it's just going to happen. But um, I think just accepting that I felt awkward and uncomfortable and, and then just kind of moving through it. And um, I don't know when I stopped feeling that way, but I definitely don't 
Like when people would reference, be like, oh, hey, coach. And I'd look around to look for other coaches and I'd be like, oh, they're talking to me. Oh, yeah, I am a coach. Um, but it, I'd say it took like a full year, but it's not like I set like a timeline of when to stop feeling that way. I think it just I grew into my my own self and, and what I had to offer and just develop more confidence slowly. And um, yeah, just feeling like, you know, I don't know, just feeling like I was actually helpful started to help me. So um, Brad, somewhere in the book, you mentioned that you have these books that you have had like four time Olympians read to help them with their practice of groundedness. What are some of the books? I should ask Shalane what ones were, what ones were most effective? <laughs> you gave me like 10 and, um, I love to read. So I, I definitely read pretty much. I mean, I don't know if I ordered all of them, but there was, there was a lot to sift through, but, um, I think you referenced even a sum in your book. Um, I think it was it not or not. Is it any? Thich Nhat Hanh. Yeah. yeah one of my favorites. Um, but yeah, you should d- dive into which books are recommended. <laughs> I think he's my favorite that you quoted in the book. Like of all the, all the different things you quoted, I was like always resonating with what you said that you learned from him. In the most, um, like is a writer. And then I want to table imposter syndrome. Cause I, I haven't never thought on that, but is a writer speaking of imposter syndrome, like I am just in a lineage of like other writers and thinkers, like anything that is new is just me combining old ideas and perhaps slightly different ways. Um, so like you could say that the most important pages in this book are the last few where I have like reading a reading list of all the, the, the other books that influence this book. Um, and back to imposter syndrome, I think that anyone that doesn't experience any imposter syndrome, I'm super suspect of (laughs) like who on earth could think like, Oh, I'm just going to coach a bunch of Olympians and I'm going to own it. And I'm not going to have any doubt. Um, that's not somebody that I would want to coach. I mean, I have tons of imposter syndrome, like to this day, like what on earth am I going to teach Shalane Flanagan about performance? Are you kidding me? Like I'm some middle-aged bald dude in North Carolina. Um, (laughs) And in, in, in all seriousness, I think that, again, it's one of these things that's non-dual. Too much of it can absolutely be crippling and it's an issue. But like the flip side of having enough imposter syndrome is just another way to be humble. And you look at all these people out there in the world who like come off as completely buttoned up and put together and probably in like 95% of those cases, they end in some kind of terrible scandal. So I'm very hesitant of anyone that doesn't have um, that doesn't have some some feeling of uh, of doubt. Like it's completely normal to have to have doubt. Something a good running analogy, and I got this from um, from Steve Magnus, who I know you all know, and who's a very close, like my closest collaborative partner and friend. Is we often feel imposter syndrome when we go speak in like big corporate audiences because that's not our world, and. One time I was like riding in the back of an Uber with Steve. I'm like, dude, I'm pretty like pretty nervous right now. Steve's like, oh yeah, my palms are sweating. I'm like, well, shit. He's like, just wait for the gun to go off. And what he meant by that is like a former high school prodigy runner, like you can be super nervous on the start line of a race and that's okay. But once the gun goes off and you're running, you're doing your thing. So in this case, it wasn't about trying to calm ourselves down. It was like, you know, let's make sure that the first three points we hit on in this presentation to a room of thousands of people are things we really know well. 
So it's similar to a runner, like let's make sure out the gate, I really settle in and feel good. And then you're just doing the thing. So in coaching, my essentially, and it's like those feelings of imposter syndrome were probably the highest, not in the middle of a workout when you were fully engaged in coaching, it was probably like leading up to a workout or after a workout or on social media, looking at other coaches, whatever it might be. Um, which again, it's okay. It's like, then once you start doing the thing, you, you get lost in the thing itself. And then those feelings kind of get, get to the wayside. Absolutely. Completely. I think, you know, the pandemic, like I said, I couldn't really coach. So I thought, sat there and thought about coaching, but didn't actually do the thing. So the sitting and thinking about like my contributions made it worse than actually getting into practice, helping athletes, communicating. Then I felt good, but it was like sitting around being like, I'm a coach, but I'm not actually doing the thing and the thinking about it made it worse. <laughs> yeah, I haven't spoken in front of thousands, but anytime I have spoke, especially in front of like a live audience or like live TV or something like that, I have to, I mean, it goes back to the presence thing. What I tell myself is like, you are here right now. This is what you are doing. You're not escaping this moment. And once I accept that, I know that like my confidence goes up and I can just like settle into what we're doing. Because if you try to be anywhere else, it's not going to go well. Yeah, 100%. Um, there's this story in the book. Um, I forgot the name because I, I don't disclose the identity of, of people that I coach. So I forgot the name that I gave this person, but really, really, really struggled with people asking her, like, are you ready? Mm. Because then she had all these doubts, like, well, am I ready? I could always be more ready. And um, we kind of tried to switch the self-talk track in her mind to just, I'm as ready as I'm going to be. Because that's the truth. Like, she wasn't lying to her brain. Like, in that moment, like, are you ready? I, I'm as ready as I'm going to be. And, and what you just mentioned about sometimes when you feel nerves before, like, speaking on live TV or whatever, it's like, well, I'm as ready as I'm going to be. Um, and there's research that shows this back to acceptance that fighting those feelings of restlessness or angst or nervousness tends to actually make them worse. Because unless you're like a master at meditation or breathing, which most of us aren't, what happens is when you try to calm down, you don't. And then you start freaking out that I've tried to calm down and I'm still not calm. So now like things must really be on the fritz. <laughs> so like the more evidence-based path is actually to be like, oh yeah, like I'm sweating. I'm really nervous right now. And that's okay. Like I'm nervous because of course I am. And I know I'm prepared. And once I get into doing the actual thing, the nerves will either float away or I'll take them with me for the ride. Shalane, can you talk about nerves a little bit? Like how, what were him some things you did throughout your career to uh, work through nerves on big stages? Yeah, I mean, to me, I always tell the athletes, um, nerves are, are a symbol of you caring, right? Like, you're nervous because you care about something, and that makes you super vulnerable because, like, you put your heart and soul and everything into something that you're about to do. So it's it's not a bad thing. Obviously, nerves can actually elevate performance, but when it becomes um, debilitating or compromising of a, a, a result in the performance – um, there's obviously like a tipping point. I had super bad nerves in high school and even in college. Um, and I learned how, you know, to manage those nerves and, and fuel them and put them in a, in a good place. But it did, I had to practice a lot of visualization. Um, 
but also, you know, what I talk about with my athletes too is don't try to be someone you're not. Like sometimes we get so nervous because we're trying to be like superhuman and a performance that's beyond us or that's not really us. Like we're trying to be someone or something that we're not. So I think sometimes I tell the athletes like everything you have that's within you is enough. And so that kind of is like a calming, calming mantra is like everything I've done, everything I'm prepared, like everything that's within me is going to be enough. I don't have to be superhuman. I don't have to do anything extra I've prepared and it's going to be what it's going to be. And to try not to force things, um, when we try to force things, we don't enter into that like state of flow and flow is super important, um, in terms of like performance and being really present. Um, but nerves nerves are tricky because they're an asset but they also can if there's a tipping point of it becoming negative wow flow was flow and presence are two of the talking points i had and we hadn't hit on flow yet so let's just talk about flow and i when i talk when i think about flow i thought through everything and i thought through my life and i was like okay flow with my kids like what our evening routine is flow with my podcast flow when i'm writing flow when i'm interviewing whatever it is it's Sometimes it's hard to get into a flow, especially, well, gosh, especially the last 18 months with kids at home, right? Like I'm trying to like prep for a podcast or whatever and like kids are running in and out of the room and getting in the flow is so hard. But maybe we can talk about some key ways to make that happen. Like how do we get into the flow? Yeah, this is another one of these million dollar questions. I wish there was like a supplement that I could sell um, to get into the flow. Um, No such thing exists. Well, the first thing is this was one of the most, and I'm going to speak of it as like writer researcher and then offer a few tips and then turn it over to Shalane to talk about this as like athlete, um, like on the line and on, on the world stage. So from a research standpoint, this was one of the most fascinating things, I think, in this whole book project was realizing that what all these ancient wisdom traditions aspire toward has the same exact definition of what modern scientists call flow. So in Buddhism, it's nirvana. In Taoism, it's the way. The Stoics talked about um, losing yourself. Uh, The Greeks talked about arete in the West, like excellence that transforms the self. And common to all of these, like, end of the spiritual path destinations is um, a minimization of yourself. So, like, you transcend yourself. There's egolessness. And perhaps the defining attribute of flow is that you are so involved in and presence for what you're doing, you forget that yourself exists. So, uh, in Tibetan Buddhism, they give, like, the example of orgasm, of sex, is like a flow is like a nirvana experience because you literally like you can lose yourself and it's no different than the artist at the 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 easel who's like just becomes one with the work or the athlete that is out there doing their thing and like there is no more chalane there is no more road there is no more running it just is um and for me it was just so neat to see that like oh my gosh like all these ancient wisdom traditions are pointing toward like what today we know is the key to performance and to well-being. There's all this research that shows that the more times we spend in flow, the the better that we feel and the healthier that we are. And I think that's because flow is like the opposite of a state of ego or angst. 
Because ego angst is like, well, what could happen to me? Mm-hmm. Or what are people going to think of me? Or what happens if I win or if I lose? Where flow, like there is none of that. It just is happening. Um, so that was like very interesting just from an intellectual research perspective to be like, oh, wow, like this, this is probably true with the capital of T because people have been talking about it for millennia. Um, so now how to get from like the esoteric flow down to how to actually get in the zone. Um, I think that there's an element of letting it happen, not making it happen. So like the worst way to try to get into flow is to try to force yourself into it. And then in non-athletic pursuits, um, minimizing distractions. So your environment has a huge impact on whether or not you can achieve these states. So if your cell phone's buzzing, if your email client's open and the little you know red dot is beeping in your computer, it's very hard to get into like a fully present flow state. Whereas if you can just work through like the first 10 minutes of whatever you're doing, whatever's in front of you, then you give yourself a chance of grooving in. Um, so now I'm going to turn it over to Shalane, though, because it's very different, like with the executives and entrepreneurs I coach mm. who live in a world of distraction. And perhaps it's the opposite when like you're lining up and it's like just you in the freaking road. Um, there's probably a whole other set of challenges that that can get in the way of flow. Yeah, I mean, I, I believe that how you acquire flow is you actually have to practice and like set yourself up an environment for flow um, like you described. I personally in my career would utilize specific workouts that would start to train the brain to enter into a state of flow. So if I were getting ready for the New York City Marathon in 2017, um, there were specific workouts where I would consciously say like, okay, today I'm going to work on like training my brain. I'm going to visualize aspects of the New York City Marathon course. I am going to take myself and transmit myself to that course and my brain is going to be out there running so that when the day arrives that I tow the line in New York, I'm literally actually going to turn off my brain and I'm going to enter into a state of flow and the work that I've done has already been done. I am now just going to go execute. And so I actually don't, when athletes enter into a state of flow and into a performance, there's not actually, people ask all the time, like, what are you thinking about? And I'm like, hopefully there's actually nothing that I'm thinking about. There's literally no thoughts. It's an empty brain and an empty brain will have optimal performance in my mind. Like in my, is how I try to prepare myself. So when I, you know, 2017, I had maybe the most heightened, like, um, sense of flow that I have ever experienced. It was like the running poured out of me and the fitness just poured out of me. All of the, I couldn't make a bad decision because my body couldn't help but make the right decisions for me. So there were literally no thoughts in my brain until like I finished, you know, the last like hundred meters and I was accepting of what was happening. But until then it was just uh, this incredible state of flow. And I think if anyone thinks back about like any of their top performances, um, whether it's in writing or like musician, um, there's something special and unique. And it's probably because they've achieved this like state of flow that is just so organic. But I do believe there has to be an element of practicing for it and kind of training yourself for it to get the best out of yourself but environment is huge so i would utilize those practice environments to cultivate flow 
I just had a chill down the spine moment, not only thinking of you winning the New York City Marathon, and also, um, you know, and we hadn't talked about this before, but like in all these ancient Eastern wisdom traditions, they describe the highest state of mind as emptiness. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. And like, that was the word that you just used. Like, there is yeah. no mind. It's just empty. No, and we not. often hear emptiness in the West and we're like, oh, that's scary. Like, there's no sense of self. What's going on? Like, I don't want to be empty. But what yeah. you're saying is it's like, it's so freeing because if there's no self, then there's no worry. You're no, just doing the thing. You just, it, you, I, I would describe it like if I could be in the best possible position in a race, it was that things were flowing out of me. Like I literally couldn't help but make the, like I made all the right decisions and it wasn't conscientious. It just happened. Um, and the brain is empty and it's like, it's very rare when the brain is empty and there are literally no thoughts. I'm just, it, it, it's, it's an incredible place to be. And I feel like when people are at their best, it's actually with an empty brain. <laughs> I mean, I feel like my brain has never been empty. <laughs> <laughs> like this sounds like pure bliss. And when you were talking about getting into the flow and like, you can't try, it just has to happen. I'm thinking about how every night I lay in bed and I try to fall asleep and I'm like, you can't try to fall asleep. You just have to fall asleep. Yeah. yeah. But that's, I mean, I would push back and say like during conversations like this, I'm sure, sure like your brain is like, well, you know, what question should I ask next or how should I steer the conversation? Um, it's always easier to be a guest on a podcast because you truly just get to be in the moment. Totally. But I've listened to your podcast enough, Lindsay. Like it's too good for your brain to be all over the place. Like I, I, I do sense that when you're having these conversations, there are moments when you're just in it. I mean, I appreciate that. I think so. I mean, I do think at the end of the day on days that I record interviews, like those are my best days. Even if like a couple hours before I know, oh shoot, I really need like 30 more minutes to like read some things and prep. Um, at the end of the conversation, at the end of the day, I my spirit is like fed from these conversations for sure. Yeah, that's something that is um, comes up all the time with um with my entrepreneur coaching clients, uh, because so much of your job as a founder is just to like do what's in front of you. And often these really smart people that are like highly creative intellectual, they just get caught in days and weeks and even months where they're just like keeping the doors opening and closing. And they come back and they're like, I'm a worse partner or I'm a worse parent because like I'm irritated, I'm angry, I'm edgy. And often the solution for this is just building in an hour of deep work every day. So they feel like they got something done where they could be present for it. And like the page was blank and then they wrote the memo. In this case, like there was no conversation and then the conversation was done. And having that kind of like moment or, or I guess in this case, moments of deep work, um, it's really nourishing. And then it makes you significantly happier and better the rest of the day. Um, I know we're talking about the practice of groundedness, but something that I love about Shalane and Elisa's book that comes out just shortly after Rise and Run is like the importance of mornings. Mm. And I, I think that they thread the needle really well because some people are night people. Like there's nothing, there's nothing biologically special about like needing to crush it in the morning. Mm -hmm. And for most people, starting off your day with a sense of like deep work, accomplishment, fulfillment just sets the tone for the rest of the day. And I think that's true whether you're a morning or a night person, because I think that the days that are the worst are when you just kind of get caught up in like the frenetic energy and busyness of life. And then dinner rolls around and you feel like you haven't really done anything. 
So then it compounds because now you're not present for your partner or you're not present for your kids because you're freaking out about the fact that you haven't really done anything. And um, I think setting aside time to do something is the easiest. The sim- simple is not easy, but it's the simplest way to overcome that feeling. Yeah, I mean, that's totally one of the reasons why I feel better at the end of the day when I've recorded a podcast. I've I've done the thing, you know. Um, okay, let's wrap up here. Um, I hear two of my children have returned to the house and you guys probably need to carry on with your day as well. Um, what are the last takeaways? Like if you could, you know, we obviously want everybody to go buy this book, but what are the last takeaways that you want to leave the audience with in regards to the messaging behind the book? I think two things. I think that, um, and this is something that's in, in the later parts of the book, that in the culture, we tend to look at things in extremes and very black and white. So there's the be self-discipline, wake up at 4 a.m., Jocko Wilnick, discipline is freedom, you know, personal responsibility camp. And then there's the let's all hold hands and sing kumbaya and self-love and be kind camp. And I think that you need both. I think that like true wisdom and true fulfillment and performance comes from when you marry fear self-discipline with fear self-compassion. Because if you try to be really self-disciplined and go for things, you better learn how to be self-compassionate because it's really hard. And if you want to do hard things, then you have to do hard things. Um, And I think like a rich and granular life comes from doing hard things. So that'd be the first thing. And then the second thing back to imposter syndrome is like, I still can't believe that like Shalane thinks that I helped her with anything from my coaching and my writing. It's not like I am feeling imposter syndrome right now. So it's like everyone feels it. And I think instead of judging it, we should like try to turn it into humility or even gratitude. Like how grateful I am that I'm here with you ladies talking about this book and that you actually take an interest in it. So I could say that's imposter syndrome, but I could also say like, wow, like this is pretty neat and try to focus on the wow, this is pretty neat. I love that. Um, Okay. I always wrap up with best, most recent books. Okay. Your list of books at the end of your book. Have you read all those books? That's so many books. Yeah, but I'm like a pro reader and writer, right? It's what I get paid (laughs) to do. Like Shalane's run a lot of miles and you've released thousands of podcasts. So yes, I have read all those books, but I don't expect anyone else to. I love reading too. I wish I could read fast. I think I don't read very fast because I I do dedicate like a solid 30 to 45 minutes every morning when I wake up, but I don't get through books very fast. Um, What of that list though? Like we read two. What do you recommend? Oh, two? I know That's there's so literally, hard. you guys, there's literally like 58 rec- recommendations. Um, right now, there are a lot in here, but it's great. Well read. So I think a book by David White that I think I recommended to Shalane called um, Crossing the Unknown Sea. And David White is a poet, but this is like a nonfiction book of prose. And it's all about like transitions. Um is a really good and beautiful book. And then the second book I'd recommend, I can't believe you're forcing me to just do two. We talked a lot about acceptance. You I can think do more. That, um, we'll then read all 54, whatever's back there. <laughs> but uh, Tara Brock wrote a book called Radical Acceptance. Okay. And uh, if that's a topic that from the start of our conversation resonated with listeners, I quote her quite a bit in the book. Um, But if you want to like really dive deep into that topic, uh, I'd recommend her book. Shalane, what about you? 
Oh, and okay. Rise and Run. Like, go pre-order. Oh, yeah. Give, nice give it a plug. Uh, give it a plug. <laughs> yeah, that comes out um, October 19th, we hope. Um, because of COVID, shipping's getting a little, a little crazy. But, yeah, um, lots of good recipes and some training. I have a 14-week training program for marathoners actually oh, cool. designed for, for Elise. So she's running her first marathon in New York City this fall, and we're celebrating our 40th birthday. So lots of fun stuff. Oh, that's um, so big. Yeah, yeah. So, um, no, I, I tend to just read uh, whatever Brad tells me to read. So. <laughs> Does anybody have any beach reads? I'm on knowing whether something's going to be good or not. So I, I really go on just strict, like, recommendations. I'm really bad about that. But, um, yeah, I, I feel like... I have limited time to actually read. So I want to make sure if I do, I'm going to really enjoy it. And it's going to be really good. Yeah, I'm going to do a flash cover. This is, uh, it's not his hard cover, but it's a soft cover. There it, it is. Like. And yeah. then beach reading. My wife, who I can't get to read my book, is reading a book called The Last Thing He Told Me by Laura Dave. Oh, I've heard and of that. Okay. She said that it is the equivalent of like eating peanut M&Ms is a book. Yeah. Oh, the last thing he told me, I need a book like that. Because, you know, you've got me reading all this serious stuff. I need a book like that. Go check out the last thing he told me. That's Caitlin's recommendation. (laughs) Oh, I'm so glad Caitlin gave us a recommendation. That's awesome. (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you guys so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This was a blast. All right. Well, we'll talk soon. Bye. 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 All right, friends, thanks for being here today. Links to purchase Brad's book, The Practice of Groundedness, will be in the show notes at lindsayhine.com. You can, of course, follow Shalane on Instagram. She is Shalane Flanagan over there. I'm sure most of you are already doing that. You can find Brad on Twitter. He does not do Instagram. You heard us talk about that in this episode. He is B Stolberg on Twitter. He's a great follow over there. You can find me on Instagram. I'm lindsayhine626. You can find me on Twitter at lindsayhine and Facebook. I'll have another podcast with Lindsay Hine. Thanks for being here. We've got another 1500 meter mile series episode with the Under Armour All Out Mile next Thursday. So one more week of double episodes. That is with Olympian Heather McLean. And then next Friday, we've got a great episode with mountain bike world champion, Sonia Looney, a great episode over there. Really fun talking with a mountain biker and learning about her mindset. Anybody who can become the 24-hour mountain bike champion has some mental strength we need to hear about. All right, have a great Friday. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend. And as always, I will see you next Friday.